Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast. Steve, this has been a uh, long journey for us. We've been working on putting this thing together. We actually started talking about, what, a year and a half ago? I think that's right, Chris. It's amazing uh, how much uh, has been accomplished and how an idea by a couple of hunting buddies, uh, talking dogs, has uh, uh, come to this point in our lives. And I'm very excited about this, and I, I want to thank you publicly for all the work that you've done uh, behind the scenes uh, of making this happen. And uh, it's it's a great day for me to be able to talk to our friends across the country and wherever this uh, podcast may travel. And, uh, yeah, it's an exciting time for me for sure. I wonder if they'll translate it into, like, uh, Japanese or something. You think they can get that uh, done on iTunes? Well, I can I can add a little few little <laughs> Japanese snippets in there like every once in a while, like "gominasai," uh, uh, which means "I'm sorry." I, I probably be doing that quite a bit through the course course of this thing. My Spanish, I may need to brush up on it a little bit. I, I, I you know, like "bonus snowshoes," "homebrew," "hasta lumbago." You know, those words I know, but beyond that, I'm pretty much just a a one language guy. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you on that. <laughs> well, we we've worked together on a few projects over the years. We uh put on the Plot Dogs Championship together and and right. you know, when you guys had the AKC World and the big hunts up there at Greensburg, then I was around. I wasn't on your staff, but sometimes I was there oh, yeah. errand boy. So no, you know, uh, let me interject that for some of the people that may not know you as well as I do, Chris, um, for a long, long time, uh, in my work in the registries, uh, coon hunters have spoken about the coon hunting game warden down in Indiana and, uh, <laughs> and, and it's been good. It's not the kind of thing you would think a hunter would be saying about a game warden. But I, you worked as a conservation officer with the state of Indiana for many years, and you might want to tell our listeners just a little bit about that. Well, uh, it, it kind of caught me off guard there. But well, uh, I know that's yeah. what that's <laughs> going to be my job throughout this thing. I hear you. Uh, <laughs> now I worked for twenty eight years with the Department of Natural Resources Law Enforcement Division in Indiana, and. Uh, when I first got hired it, as a rookie, you got to you get really got to walk that thin line. But I was always a always a, a houndsman, and believe it or not, houndsmen always haven't always had the best uh, reputation among conservation officers, and and conservation officers haven't had the best best reputation, or the game wardens haven't had the best reputations among houndsmen, and some of that credit goes to both sides on that, and. I just saw as I as I got a little more tenure in the department and things like that. I never gave up the houndsmanship and hunting with my dogs and things like that. And I was able to gain some influence and and have some influence on some legislative issues. And uh, it's more of a rules making process actually for the state. Indiana is just a hotbed for hound sports when you think about it. Autumn oaks, uh, the breed every breed 
organization uh, looks to have their events here in the state of Indiana. And uh, then it, it finally got to a point where Jerry Mall and I co-founded the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance uh, and and wanted to form an organization that represented houndsmen and, and tree dog sports in the state of Indiana. We had a great time doing it, and we made some made some strides, and we increased our influence as a sporting group. So that's that's pretty much it. The rest of the time, I just you know hunt these hills and hollers down here in Bear Branch, Indiana, and and uh, try to turn out a coon dog every once in a while or a hound that somebody can <laughs> use anyway. Yeah, we've had a lot of good hunts in those hills and hollows over the years, Chris. We and, sure uh, have. Yeah, yeah, and it was probably on one of these hunt, those hunts that we first discussed this idea of a podcast. I've always wanted uh, to get into a radio program or something like that for coon hunters and houndsmen, bear hunters, whatever the per- persuasion. And uh, this podcasting thing has come along and lo and behold i believe it's a perfect vehicle uh to answer that desire that i've had for a long time and hopefully it'll be worth uh, the effort for people to to listen to us as these podcasts come in out every week and and part of our goal here or part of our the things that we've already discussed steve is is uh you know getting the most elite extreme houndsmen in our sport to come onto this podcast and introduce those people and, and use their knowledge to influence. The thing I'm most excited about is I'm going to get to talk to people that I can learn from. And I learn something every time I talk to you and I learn something every time I talk to, talk to one of these hounds, houndsmen that we're, we're interviewing. And, and that is really the most exciting part for me is I get to host this thing and I get to talk to these people and, and bring that knowledge forward. So that's great. Well, well, I share that too, uh, Chris, that desire and that appreciation as I do my writing, uh, I get to interview a lot of people and that really is, is uh, a great payback for me for that. But, uh, anyway, here we are, man, we thought about it. We got conceived the idea if the old saying, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, well, one of the uh, uh, self-help gurus said, you know, what the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. <laughs> and so uh, here we are. <laughs> here we are. Well, we discussed this topic over and over about what we wanted to do on our on our very first podcast. And I think the uh, logical place to start is talking about the history of hound sports and the breeds and, you know, what, what people were using hounds for in, in colonial times is much different today, you know, than what, than what houndsmen are are going to the field for today. Um, You know, you've mentioned before about our dogs have become so specialized when, you know, colonial times, it was more of a utilitarian type dog. Uh, gathering the sheep or guarding the homestead, you know, several times I've heard the the stories about, you know, they never tied a hound up. It laid under the porch or it laid on the porch. And if they were going to hunt, the hound knew. If they were going out to carry, gather cattle, the, the hound knew and he would tag along. And that seems like the logical place to start to me. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, the history of the breeds is so, uh, so rich and uh, that would be several podcasts to delve into all the particular histories of the various breeds of dogs. But we know that the colonists brought dogs with them. We know that George Washington and Thomas Paine and some of these people were very influential in bringing dogs from Europe, from England, and from France, the Lafayette gifts to George Washington of mm-hmm. what we believe to be the blue tick type dogs. Uh, and, and all of that, and then the Walker family of Kentucky and their importation of dogs from Ireland and England and all of that rich history. But, you know, uh, the dogs have progressed uh, to to be used for all types of specialties. And uh, even within my wheelhouse, I guess you would call the sport of coon hunting, uh, we, you know, the dogs are are broken down into specialties 
whether the dog is a pleasure dog or a competition dog. Um, is the dog a wide hunting dog? Is the dog a close, thorough hunting dog? And so uh, every hunter in some way uh, has contributed to specialize or, or creating a special kind of dog to fit the need. And I think it's pretty interesting to look at how some of that progression has happened down through the years. And and the the whole thing with every hunter has played his role. You know, no two no two hunters are satisfied with the same type of dog. You know, they it, it doesn't matter when you get right down on the weeds. Every hunter has their own preference of how they like for a dog to operate, and um, that's where the specialty has come in. Also, the specialties of separating between big game hounds and coon hounds. You can add that to the competition and the pleasure hound. You've also got the big game hunter who may look for different traits in the hounds. But don't you think that the foundation of all these hounds, it all came from the same spot. It came from the same origin, the same beginning, and we've moved up through history to 2019, and that's where we're at today. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just truly fascinating. The hounds, you know, for many years. Well, well, let's talk about it this way. When I was a kid, believe it or not, Sears and Roebuck catalog had dogs in there. You could go in the catalog and you could look at these little inch squares or whatever these different pictures of dogs, and you could order puppies from Sears. But during that time. I never saw a coon hound, uh, you know, and then later on, well, we talk about the history of the registries, um, the AKC in about, uh, 1884, I believe it was the UKC or maybe a little earlier, the UKC in, in, uh, 1885, I think was the year they started. But at any rate, there was only one breed that was basically considered a coonhound, and that was a black and tan. Mm -hmm. And then along came the English-type dogs, from which evolved the train walkers and the blue ticks, or, or uh, through selective color, basically. And then the red bone was a southern foxhound that uh, that was developed. Uh, a black and tan-colored dog to start, and, and selectively bred to be a red dog. And and then of course the plot that came with that family from Germany in right. 1750, but uh, these dogs uh, uh, have Some... now oh have now come. Let me finish this one little sure. thought. Have they they have now come to the point where all six breeds of coonhound are accepted by the American Kennel Club, and you can watch them trot around the ring at Westminster. Uh, every year in February, if that's you know that's your uh, 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 if that's your thing, so really coonhounds have come a long way. Right. Uh, but but how did they get here? And uh, you know certainly some people would say uh, we haven't improved them. They used to be better years ago than they are now. Mm -hmm. Another would say we've made them remarkable uh, strides. So uh, that's what I, you know, this discussion today kind of interests me because as we can get down in some of my personal ideas of how they've gotten to the point they are today. I look at that. I look at that as both sides. There are two sides to that, that wooden nickel right there. And maybe it's not a wooden nickel, but there's two sides to that coin for sure. You know, you've got the people that said they were better than, and you've got people that say they're better now. And in my experience, when I started hunting in, in the early 80s, it was hard to find a pup that was going to make a dog that would consistently go out and tree game. You know, um, and it seems to me today, 38 years later, that... I struggle to find people to put quality pups with that can make a top hound out of that dog. Do you mm -hmm. understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I see that 
there's been a need there. Um, maybe in in the early days that you talk about, the need was more astute breeders breeding, selectively breeding for a better dog. Mm-hmm. And now we've got the genetics, right? but we don't have the handlers that are astute, if we, for lack of a better term, enough about the sport of hounds to take that dog to the next step. Mm-hmm. And, it seems and, like litters and, today are more consistent. You know, you take, we're going to interview Randy Smith. We'll have him on here in a, in a couple of weeks, but, uh, we've, he's getting pretty consistent litters out of his lone pine walkers and other breeders are getting pretty consistent litters now where that 40 years ago, that was an anomaly. And if you could find a hound that could produce or a set of hounds that could produce consistent litters like that, I mean, it really was, it was an unusual thing. Yeah. In my own experience growing up in Southern West Virginia, I was born in 1946. So those of you who didn't have to endure common core math, you may be able to use the old methods and figure out how old I am. But, <laughs> uh, but, but it you know, I'm not picking on a breed, but let's just say the Walker dog, mm-hmm. uh, that those uh, carrying papers uh, that came into our part of the country, it was rare to see one that would tree. Right. Uh, we had, uh, but of course there was a lot of off game fox and deer. Uh, well, some deer, mainly fox and other, other, uh, fast game, I guess. Right. But, but, uh, now, you know, you hear hunters talking about, we've got too much tree right. in the breed. Right. And so the, those changes and, and those changes didn't just happen. You know, the amazing thing we have, I think the uh, American Kennel Club registers 150-some breeds now, I believe. I haven't kept up Mm -hmm. with the new ones, but they introduce two or three new breeds every year. I'm waiting for the the poo tick. The the poo tick. The cross between the poodle and the blue tick. My wife came up with that, and she's thinking that if we would get a poodle, we could sell them for a lot of money. Poo ticks. Well. And those designer breeds do sell for a lot of money, and that's a topic for another day of why coonhound pups are not worth more money than they are right, when no you doubt. can sell a little mixed-up mutt uh, for $1,500 and up. No, you know? so no that's, kidding. That's another subject there altogether. But, you know, there's a reason why these dogs went from being uh, – uh, uh, scarcely find a tree dog in the bunch to every litter is full of tree dogs. And now how do we get some of that tree out of them? <laughs> you know, those <laughs> kind of questions. So there has been a progression and, and it, but on the positive side, just like you said, uh, litters are more consistent. You get, um, uh, whole litters of pups today right. that start. And, and some of the things that come to mind with me is I pick up the pages of pro hound magazine, the PKC, uh, uh, house organ there and, and look at the leaders and the pup leaders and the, and all that. And you look at the sires and the dams of those dogs and have a list of 20 or 24 dogs you rarely see the same dog appearing twice as being a sire of mm. one of those le- leaders. And that tells me that, that yeah, that a lot of dogs are producing good puppies. Right. You know, we look back in the day and we attribute Tennessee lead with putting the, the ability to, to run the red Fox to ground for the Walker boys in Kentucky. And when we think about Johnson's banjo being the guy that came along and put the tree dog in the in the mm-hmm. tree and walker breed, you know, and then you can list other dogs, Smoky River Diamond Jim, perhaps yep. in, in Warren Hassler's Smoky River line of dogs would be one one to think about. And, and we go back to Boyd's Little Joe or, 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 you know, in the English breed mm-hmm. and, and on and on we go and we cite these certain individuals. But it really took more than just one dog to make all that happen. But uh, uh, the the dogs definitely have changed, and I kind of have a theory about that. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear your theory. 
I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> I I will confess as we uh, this is our inaugural podcast, the very first one. I looked that up in the dictionary, and that means it's the very first one. Yep. And I, there's a problem with my family. My dad was <laughs> the, uh, one of nine children. Yeah. And gatherings at my grandmother's farm in Tennessee, where all the, my dad's siblings were together, was an absolute madhouse. Because fielders love to talk. And uh, it's been said, if you ask us what time it is, we'll tell you how to build a watch. So <laughs> I'm going to have to rein that in on this podcast. And that's going to be your biggest job, Chris, <laughs> is keeping me in line and not too windy. And I don't want to dominate these conversations. So let's go with this idea. This is in, oh. your, this is in your wheelhouse right here. <laughs> Okay, and we're going to explore a lot of different areas of of the hound sports, and I can't wait to get into some of these big game hunters and these wild boar hunters and all these and hear Mm -hmm. their their stories and how their dogs are developed and how they perform and all. But we're talking coon hounds right now, okay? Let's just talk – okay, I'm going to let you complete your thought, but we're going to eventually put this into hounds – you know, all yeah, the hounds and ab- how, absolutely. how what because you're going to talk about right now has developed every hound that a hunter, that a houndsman in 2019 is turning loose. So go. Right. Okay. You, you mentioned earlier the fact of the dogs that slept under the house and they whistled them up at dark if they lit the lantern and wanted to go uh, in the woods for a possum or a coon. That's the way my dad grew up. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was using cur dogs. Uh and then we evolved to this point of where uh, we have four-wheel drive pickups with $1,000 and up invested in a dog box in the back and, and uh, garments and, and tracking equipment and training equipment and, and all that goes with it, lights that have a gazillion lumens, whatever a lumen is, and we're going to have uh, Ray Conrad with Bright Eyes Lights on pretty soon to tell us all about that. But anyway, uh, uh, these dogs underwent a real transformation at the close of World War II. The farm boys all went away to war. The coon hunters, the the fox hunters, mm-hmm. the beaglers, uh, the bear hunters, uh, although most at that time, the black bear populations, especially in the Appalachians of southern, the southeastern part of the country, bear were there, but they were very scarce because those old homesteaders, guess what? They thinned down the bears. Mm-hmm. My dad used to tell me, he said, Steve, at one time, these mountains that we're hunting now that seem to be remote and deserted were full of people. And you could find the old homesteads and the old chimneys that were still standing mm-hmm. from those homesteads. And they, you know, by the turn of the century, uh, coming into the 20th century, the bear had almost been eradicated from the southeastern mountains. But now the bears are back in great numbers. Right. But it, but anyway, those, those dogs, when those boys came back from the war, uh, they... The the fellows down in Alabama, uh, John Carter and uh, Robert Graves and those guys developed a, a competition. There were there were hunts around before, uh, but they decided to standardize the rules and put together a set of rules where we could go out and set four dogs down in a contest to determine which dog was better than the other three. And that was actually the advent of the what we called the night hunt. And, you know, that was in the 40s, uh, the, the late 40s. And the American Coon Hunters Association was formed and began to have a world championship each year in October. And, uh, and the winner began to the, – the magazines started to grow, like Mountain Music. And and American Cooner and Full Cry, and and clubs begin to form across the United States, and 
uh, all of a sudden there was all this focus and a spotlight on coon hunting. And at the same time, the fox hunters were organizing and registries like the, uh, uh, the chase, uh, the international foxhound stud book and, and the hunter's horn out in Missouri and the red ranger in Alabama. And, and those registries and trials uh, were organized. Trials were being held for foxhounds and then beagles, came along. Uh, well, they were always there in the Beagle trials and all that. And, and uh, so the, all of this organization and this desire to compete among all these people uh, that had come back uh, tired of war, uh, working no longer on the farm, uh, where, as you have said, that that the dogs were a necessity to catch food for the table or furs for trade and, and uh, barter or whatever. And, and now it becomes a sport. It, it's it's no longer a necessity, but it's a welcome sport for the guy that spent eight, ten hours in a factory to come home and be able to turn his dogs loose. Yeah, there's, and then, there's still people earning a living with their dogs, but they're, by and large, they're, main guides or they're in Canada or in the, they're in the West, they're, they're professional guides and they're using the dog like that now to do that. But well, yeah. now it's, now we've, you know, for me, it's recreation. Exactly. And, 90, and that's not, 95% of people it is. Right. Today, for sure. No doubt about it. But anyway, I think the single greatest influence on the hounds that we have today was the competition hunt, even though a lot of people like bear hunters and bobcat and lion hunters and hog hunters and just pleasure hunters uh, will never go to a competitive event. The dog that they have to hunt today has been influenced by those competitive events. Uh, you know, the, the competition hunt was designed to reward the dog that could tree the most raccoons in the least amount of time or an allotted amount of time. Mm -hmm. I, in my book, I talk about early beginnings and I remember going to a field trial with my dad on a Saturday morning and this, the, the drag came up over a hill and about a, Oh, a hundred feet or so to a tree that stood alone, an oak tree in a field. Many of the dogs that were entered in that field trial were mixed breed dogs, predominantly greyhound mixes with hound. They were all gray dogs back in that day. And these hounds, or these dogs would come flying up over this hill and many times overrun the track because it made a turn to the right. But then they'd get their legs under them and they'd come into this tree and they'd jump and, and snap and jump and finally one of them would bark. But in the distance, I could hear these long, drawn-out balls from hounds. Mm -hmm. And after these other hounds, these greyhounds were already at the tree, here comes these two black and tan hounds. I thought you were going to say blue ticks. <laughs> they were long-eared black and tans, their ears nearly dragging the ground, the old-fashioned black and tan. And you can see, still see those dogs in the AKC dog shows because they, they've continued to breed that type of dog. But, you know, as, as I did the research on that breed, you know, uh, they were commonly called sky lookers. They would, they would trail, they would stop plant their feet, throw their head toward the sky and let out this mournful ball. And then they would progress, mm -hmm. you know? So along comes a guy named Hans Wagner, uh, who was uh, a window dresser. He was a, a clothing uh, guy, retailer, and he would create these window displays in department stores was what he did for a living. But he then comes along with what he calls a medium eared black and tan. For, so how he did it, I don't know. How What the theories are, did he breed Doberman into them or whatever? Uh, nobody knows that for sure. But all of a sudden now, here's a black and tan that's a trimmer built, 
longer legged, uh, a shorter ear, although they still had a, 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 a predominantly hound ear, and they were faster, and they treat coons quicker, and all. So, and probably because of the night hunt, the desire, whether the guy was a pleasure hunter or a competition hunter, he heard all this talk about these fast dogs mm-hmm. that could run and tree a coon quickly and locate quickly. And the magazines were full of this. It's got, this dog is quick on it, quick, both ends. He's a strike dog. He's a quick first strike dog. He's a first tree dog. Yada, yada. All this talk about speed. You know, it's like today we want high speed internet. Now we want ultra high speed, right. <laughs> super ultra high speed, right. you know? So that in that way, these events influence the type of dog. And then well, that carry, go ahead. Well, go ahead and finish that thought. I, I had a question that we'll probably get to, but you know, have you seen, I've, I feel certainly feel like I've seen, we're adjusting the type of hound to that set of rules. And on one hand, I understand that, you know, they're not using plow horses at the Kentucky Derby. They're breeding for a specific horse that can win the Kentucky Derby. So I understand that part, but what has that done for the big game hunter or the hog hunter, uh, or the guy that, that, doesn't have any desire to go to a competition hunt. Well, I'd like to get into that, Chris, but I would like to continue down the trail here that I was on just for a minute. I'll make a note and and we'll come back. Okay. Okay. Because you better hold that thought because if I don't write it down, it's lost forever. I can promise you that. (laughs) But having chaired, the night hunt rules committees for about 16 years at UKC. I was able to do what we hear spoken of about legislation and that's seeing sausage being made. Mm-hmm. We, when I had to assume the hat of the field operations manager or whatever at UKC and had to interpret the rules. It was a great help to me because I had been in the room when the rules, many of them were made. So I understood the process. I understood the reasoning why I, uh, but, but for those who don't know how those rules were made, I'd like to, to just take a little trip to 100 East Kilgore road. Well, I think, I think we should talk about this because the guys, the guys that I know that are in the Rocky Mountains, they're interested. They don't. They may not all understand. They may have never even participated in a field trial. So we're going back to the roots here to explain night hunts and how that has influenced the hound that they're turning loose. Uh, I'm sure there is, there are hounds out there that went out there on wagons and and they've been specialized in their own rights. But I know several houndsmen that still dip back into the coonhound uh, world back east here to help influence or bring a trait that they need to a pack of big game hounds. So I think we need this is worth worthy of our time here. Well, yeah, and, and that's ultimately where I'm going here, Chris. But I'm just to try to make the point or to illustrate wh- why the hounds of today are like they are and unless that big game hunter out west or up in the northeast or in the Smoky Mountains or whatever has maintained a consistent breeding program over a long period of time, he's going to have to rely on these coonhound breeders back here for puppies to to develop into big game dogs. So let's go uh, ahead and talk about your your rules and and that sort of thing because that is what's – where do you, where would our hounds be without that night hunt that that was developed in Alabama? Those night hunt rules. That's where we're getting at. You know, right. we, now we're now we've got them, and it's definitely influencing our hound breeds. So tell us how we got here, Steve, with your rules committee, and tell us how that sausage has been made. Okay, if I can uh, indulge our listeners to go with me 
to 100 East Kilgore Road, the offices of United Kennel Club. In 1973, a guy that had worked in the aerospace business named Fred Miller was living in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he had no desire to go back to California uh, where uh, his company uh, was asking him to relocate. He liked Michigan. He wanted to stay there. And he found out through an, a, friend, a friend that was an attorney that this business, this dog business, was for sale. It was owned by uh, Dr. Ed Furman. Uh, his wife, Frances, had operated it for several years after the founder, Chauncey Bennett, had died. And uh, Fred uh, bought the United Kennel Club in, 19, in February of 1973. It just so happened in 19... 73 in August, I attended plot days after just returning home from Japan for my uh, three-year tour over there with, uh, with the Air Force. I met Fred for the first time there. And then uh, I was privileged through the plot association to serve on the rules committee for a couple of terms. Uh, the way that works is each of the six chartered breed associations, I know there's seven now, including the, rep, the leopard, but each of those uh, appoint two committee members at that time to go to the rules committee to review the entire scorecard of rules and to make changes as they saw fit. Okay. <clears throat> After those uh, two stints on the committee myself – then when I went to work full-time at UKC in 1983, it was my responsibility to chair those meetings. Typically, the guys would come in at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. That's when the meeting started. The procedure was to take the scorecard, which was essentially the rules that Robert Graves and John Carter and the boys in Alexander City, Alabama had constructed whereby you take four dogs, you take them out, you hunt them in a cast uh, for, uh, for, for two hours. At that time, it was three hours and, yeah. uh, and, and the, to determine the winner. And dogs were awarded according to how quickly they struck the trail and then how quickly they found the tree. And if they, there was coon in the tree, the points were plus. If there was no coon in the tree, they were minus. And if, if the tree was full of leaves and you gave the benefit of the doubt and you put a circle around the points, which counted neither for nor against the dog unless you uh, were breaking ties. Okay, so this scorecard is laid out. But I'll never forget the speech that Fred gave every single time that I was on rules committee. <laughs> he would say, fellas, I know you each come here with an agenda. You think that the rules should be this way or that way because you're hunting this particular type of dog. I will remind you, he said, that you are here representing your breed association. They have voted on the proposed changes or given you suggestions or rules that they, not you, but they uh, would like to see uh, uh, enacted. So I'm going to remind you that you are not voting your pleasure or your wishes, but those of your association. And also keep in mind that if we were to address every single possible thing that could happen out in the woods, our scorecard that you have before you would look like a New York City phone directory, and the judge would have a backpack on his back to carry the rules and would have to spend countless time cross-referencing and looking uh, while the rain pours down or the mosquitoes are buzzing around <laughs> his head to find the one specific rule that covers that situation, and I'm going to use a little poetic license here, that when dog A trees up to the left and dog uh, B trees to the right and the coon is in a tree uh, in the middle and a bolt of lightning strikes the coon and it falls out, if it falls nearer to dog A, does he get the plus? Or if he falls nearer to dog B, does he get the plus? I mean, 
there were so many extreme situations that came in mm -hmm. uh, across those tables. And he was trying to say this, you know, we've got a good set of rules, but we know that they can use a little tweaking from time to time. So that's what our mission is, not to rewrite this scorecard every year, but to, to you know, refine what we have. And he was a very wise man, and I took those comments to heart, and I used them um, myself over the years. It sounds like you took them to heart. You can just about quote the speech verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great deal of respect for Fred Miller. Yeah. He had his detractors, but he was a guy that had the houndsman's uh, future at heart, and that's a subject for another day. But okay, so what happened then? All right, we know that there's been an ev uh, a progression of these dogs. Why do we have a dog that's maybe a little too quick to tree? There are different schools of thought there. You know, some people say, well, if we had better track dogs, they would be able to finish that track to a positive result. Right. instead of giving up too early and getting treed too quickly. And that's a good idea, and I, I hold to that to a great deal myself. The other is that we awarded 125 tree points to the dog that treed first, where the dog that strikes first only gets 100. So therefore, we put the emphasis on tree dogs instead of on track dogs, and mm -hmm. that's why we have too much tree. <clears throat> then you could bring in the idea the dog makes that title night champion or grand night champion. And then he goes in the magazine in a stud ad. And what does the stud ad say? This dog is a, is a one-bark tree. There you go. Yeah, he's a one-bark tree dog, man. He's going to die by it, right or wrong. You know, Jerry Mull would pick – when you talk to him, he has a way of deciphering – uh, a stud dog ad and it's interesting uh, we'll have to talk to him about that sometime absolutely you know you, absolutely. you hear a dog that takes his tracks as he as he comes to him what does that what does that mean does that mean he runs every track or you know <laughs> yeah yeah we read between the lines exactly they on the ad yeah. and you know that's becoming that's a whole different progression that used to be the stud dog ads every month were you know magazines were stuffed with them. Oh, I wore now, pages of those old red. Re, remember when Cooner had a red cover on it and a black and white oh, yeah. photo? Yeah, that's what I did. And then I would get, I actually got the old, the first hound I ever had was an English red tick. And with it from my uncle came uh, probably two or three years worth of uh, the United English Breeders and Fanciers Association yearbooks. And I absolutely wore those things out looking at those dogs. Yeah, no doubt. I waited every month for that full cry to come with is all mm -hmm. rolled up in brown paper. Yeah, they did. And the paper yep. was kind of wrapped in the roll, so you had to cut it out, and you had to be real careful. You'd cut your magazine, <laughs> you know. And then when you got it out of the brown paper off, you had to uh, roll it up the opposite way. So you could flatten it out enough to read it, you yeah. know, and yeah. it was new, like reading newsprint. And you and didn't throw the brown paper away because it went to the outhouse or the wood stove, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's like old Bubba, my friend back in West Virginia, he ordered some some uh, bathroom paper, you know, some toilet paper uh, from the uh, Sears. And they wrote back to him and said, sir, we need your catalog number. And he wrote back and he said, if I had the catalog, I wouldn't need the toilet paper. <laughs> you know, so, that's an old joke. Yeah. I apologize. But, uh, yeah. So uh, you can begin to see how the dogs have been influenced. And that influence continues then as there's been changes in the rules. There's been changes in the registries. There's been changes in the length of time that were hunting these dogs, you know, there's been, uh, because it's hard to find places to hunt and people to guide, we've gone from three-hour hunts down to now, you know, we have the two-hour hunts are rapidly becoming 90-minute hunts. Right. And then we have the midweek one-hour hunts. And so get it done quickly. 
And there's been a trend in the last few years to have a dog that gets struck quickly, mm-hmm. gets deep, and gets treed. And by the time you're able to get to that dog, score his coon, and so forth, the hunt is practically over. So it's a one-and-done deal in order to win that one-hour cast. So the, all of those those rules have greatly influenced the type of dog that we hunt today. There it is. Whether, whether we are a big-game hunter, a bobcat hunter, a hog hunter in, in Louisiana, like our friend Mike Colley, or whatever, they have, whether we want, ever ran a coon with our dogs or not, whether we would ever go to a coon, uh, competition coon hunt or not, the basic fact remains that the winners are bred to. If it's a dog show, the, when I was at AKC, my job as being the head of the coonhound department was to create these seminars for judges so that they would know how to correctly judge these coonhound breeds that were now coming in to the AKC breeds that they had never seen before. And one of the things that I used to tell them at those seminars, uh, one of which was every year at the Westminster Dog Show in New York, was that what you put up in the ring, or in other words, what you pick is what is going to be bred to. So be sure you pick good dogs that match the standard as your winners. You know, and the same thing applies to performance dogs. Yeah, you know, and so why do we get dogs maybe that don't open as much on track that cover way too much ground for the average hunter out West? You know, you want a dog that you put him on that track. You want him to stay with that track. You know, you don't want him free casting in the next count, uh, next Canyon. You know, we spoke with Ross Feenstra lately, uh, recently, and he talked about that and his dogs are unleashed. They're under voice control. You know, you have to keep things. It's a controlled environment. Uh, That's completely foreign to the the competition hunter back here. You know, you cut that cut that dog loose. You you want them firing out of there. When they hear that snap close, you want them. You already want them fifteen yards away from you by the time that snap snaps back. So yeah, you know, it's just it's the interesting thing though is we'll talk about social media here a little bit. One of the, one of the biggest posts that I ever put on social media that got the most interest from my hound hunting friends and the most reaction messages, emails, conversations I've had was from my lion hunt this past, that's this past winter. And then the biggest questions I get from houndsmen in the West that call and talk is about what really goes on at autumn Oaks or you know, a lot of guys will call it the world championship coon hunting or world series coon hunting back here. Cause regardless of what we're using our hounds for, we're still intrigued by using a hound. And, you know, you talked about changing the hound. It's also changed. Night hunts have also changed the houndsman, the person that is oh. hunting the dog. Sure. Absolutely. And, I find with the younger hunter, and I feel, you know, I'm an old guy now, and young people throughout the ages have been reluctant to listen to older people. You know, there was an expression when I was a kid that he's an old fogey, Mm -hmm. whatever a fogey is, meaning that, you know, he's outdated. He's yesterday's news. But there, the knowledge that is required in my mind to be a good houndsman, no matter what game you're pursuing, uh, is so important. It's more important than the equipment you have or the truck you drive or, or whatever is to know what is that dog doing? Uh, you know, can I trust that dog to be on the game that I intended him to to and and how do i learn to trust that dog uh, i have to to it has to be done through all of the uh, for many many nights or days in the field getting to know that dog and getting uh uh so that when he telegraphs uh or when he barks he telegraphs information back to me but there's a lot of information that i want to portray 
uh, uh, to these young people, uh, but I don't want to do it against their will. And I think that's where the young people, if they really want to be a good houndsman, they need to listen to those that have learned lessons for many years and are willing to, uh, to you know, to uh, impart that information on to these people. Well, Steve, I'm going to give you a little more license here because I want your opinion on where do you think hounds, whether it be big game or coon honey, would be today without the advent of the competition coon hound and, and that competition that has is, is driven the breeding and the reproduction of the hounds that we enjoy today. Well, I think what would probably have happened would there would be a lot of different individual types of dogs. If they were only used for pleasure hunting alone, uh, they may have evolved to a silent trailing dog. They may have evolved to a dog that trailed too much just because the hunter loved to hear the sound and there was no reason to get in a hurry and let that dog trail around all night long if he wants to, mm -hmm. as long as he ultimately trees that coon. That's just fine. We'll put another log on the fire and sit back and enjoy it, you know. So we may have ended up with that type of dog. We, As I said, we may have ended up with a silent trailing dog. We may have ended up with a dog that couldn't get along with other dogs at all that was, you know, because competition forces us to have a dog that will uh, tolerate and and not give too much uh, aggression. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's just a lot of factors, I think, that come in there that uh, different ways that we could have gone. But because there was this standardized, and I don't want to beat this horse, but because there was this standardized set of rules, we kind of all had a bit of a common goal. You know, and that was to to uh, an open trailing dog that got his mouth open quickly, could move a track quickly, could locate the tree accurately, and would stay there barking at that tree until we could get there. Mm -hmm. And and I think that the rules more than anything else got us all houndsmen uh, in the tree dog world. Now I'm not, you know, things are are, are different for people that are not pursuing competition hunting but i think that in that way the rules form the kind of dog we have now we take that dog uh just like we took those foxhounds of the walker family because they were quick fleet of foot and, and all and they were able to transition into this competition dog that begin to win like merchants bali you know, won the ACHA World Championship three times mm -hmm. with J James Merchant handling him. So the the type of hound, that faster hound that Tennessee lead influenced down in Kentucky for the Walker family uh, became the star of the night hunt game. Right. So so coon hounds were influenced by fox hounds. Now coon hounds are influencing, I think, and big game hunters may argue with me here, but uh, they have probably influenced the big game hound as well. They may have put more drive in that uh, big game hound. Well, that, Fen Finley River blood, you know, that's a common big game bloodline. Uh, that was coon hound. And yeah. Lester Nance was right, he was from right here in Indiana. We don't, we don't have bears here, but Nance bred hounds are big for that. Oh you know, yeah. The only the only breed that I can really think of that might be exclusive, you know, you take you take the the dogs that Barry Tarleton bred when he's and maybe even well your dad coon hunted quite a bit. And uh we'll have to ask uh Barry's family about this eventually, but you know, they weren't they weren't coon hunting by and large. They they kept big game stock and, and bred true to big game traits. So that would have been their plots. But um in my in my opinion of this whole thing, from from hearing you talk, developing that opinion as we go here, if we had not had some coon hunting houndsmen that took hold of this thing following the war, it it would have been really hard for us in 2019 
to find hounds that would have met our expectations? Without a doubt, you know, the record keeping has been so important. And, and, I, and we, I, Steve, I'll say real quick, and that is regardless of what game I choose to pursue with that hound. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think that the the record keeping is a vital tool, uh, a very necessary tool uh, for any hounds person. Now, the old saying, papers don't tree game or don't catch game. Uh, to me, it's kind of foolish uh, because you have to be able to see where you've been to to figure out where you're going. I mean, you've got to look back and see, you know, what brought you here and then what's the next step. Well, for, me, dad, for me, you know, the whole the, – I'm not going to track – you know, I, I'm not a big breeder. I've raised a few litters in almost 40 years of hunting. Uh, but me paying to register that litter is a pretty cheap way for me to be able to keep track of what the offspring of my dogs are doing. I can I can watch their development. UKC or PKC or whatever registry you're using is tracking all of that for you, and they're keeping track of all that. I can be doing other stuff. I can be training my own dogs, and 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 so to me that's a pretty pretty low cost for. Uh, the ability to have somebody else do my book work for me. Right. And over the years, I've tried to read as much as I can about breeding. I don't understand a lot of it. I'm certainly not a scientist uh, or a geneticist, but I read books like uh, The Art of Breeding Better Dogs by Onstott and, uh, and things like that. And I learned the importance of family breeding and line breeding and, and establishing mm-hmm. a line of dogs. And, and every uh, – sure, you get outstanding in, individuals by outcrossing. There's no question about it. But that's a crapshoot every time. You know, you may or you may not. If you do establish a family line, you've got something to hang your hat on. You know, if it's just if you're uh, simply uh, want uniformity in the confirmation of that dog, the athleticism of that dog, uh, not to mention, you know, the the treeing instinct or mm-hmm. the cold trail ability, you've got to establish that through a line of dogs. Because then every time, you know, if that's the kind of dog you want, like my father, for instance, he wanted a 45, 50-pound dog, wiry dog that could bounce around through those rocks and laurel thickets and catch a bear. You know, that's what he bred for. He wanted him to be able to take a cold trail and trail it as well. But he found that line breeding or family breeding those dogs was the way he could consistently get that type of dog. Mm-hmm. whether it suited anybody else or not, you know. And that's what he tried to tell his friends that were hunting crossbred dogs and had no breeding programs whatsoever. And when the good dog died, they just went looking for another one somewhere. Well, I think and that, he, go ahead, finish that no, up. No, but I think that's, you know, that's where registration and records, because registration, unless you're using it as a ticket, to get into a competitive event, registration is records. Right. That's why registries uh, come down so hard on people that falsify records because they are a records business. The records have to be accurate in order to be worth the paper they're written on. Right. But that's where the registered dog or the paper dog comes in. It does. Does the papers itself make them better? No. But that foundation behind those that is recorded on those papers may indeed be making that dog a better dog. Well, there's there's no taking away the fact that we all know somebody, either uh, in our lives now or in our past, who had a knack for breeding dogs. They weren't educated. They, you know... That's because our society's changed. I'm going to bring this full circle. In 1900, 75% of families were still agriculture-based. They didn't travel far from home. They were on the farm every day. The kids were on the farm. By 1950, that had dropped to almost 30%. 
and you just watch it. And now in 2019, you know, the guy that was, was breeding dogs without papers at the turn of the century, he was with those dogs 24-7 every day. He knew what he was looking at. He saw what he was looking at. The dog got bred whether he got it in the corn crib or not uh, or in time or not, and and he watched that and he saw what he had. We really don't, in our current society, for just your average person who is hunting dogs, doesn't have that kind of time to dedicate to it. So that's what I'm, I, I see the benefit of the registry is we have specialized our dogs. We have kept track of records, and now I can go do my job and work that's not agriculture-based and still have a foundation to build on. Does that make sense? Did I bring that around? Absolutely. A great job, Chris. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, I think we've... Have you got any final thoughts, Steve? I think we've shined the tree pretty well, Chris. Uh, (laughs) And the idea... Did we did we slick I, did we slick tree any along the no, way? No, I think I think we found some game. I think know? our listeners we, will let us know if we slick treed any. I, I I think what we did is pick the low hanging fruit, and there's a lot <laughs> more fruit up in that tree that we that we need to pick before this podcasting thing is all done. But I think that uh, our listeners have been patient to listen to our views, and I hope that they'll come back every week as we bring some really exciting guests into our podcast. And uh, uh, once again, Chris, I want to thank you for helping uh, a a dream that I've had for a long time. Well, let's, uh, let's get before we start, before we sign off here, Stephen, I really appreciate you saying that let's give a little sneak preview of, of kind of what we've got in the tank. You know, we won't give away the, all the surprises, but you're on the road right now. You're talking to me from your brother Randy's in Virginia, and um, you've been doing some interviews along the way. So can we give our listeners a little bit of a sneak peek of what they're going to get in the next few weeks from us and in the future? Well, yeah, I'd be glad to do that, Chris. I know we had a great conversation the other day with Ross Feenstra, with the the president of the Montana Houndsman Association, not only talking about hunting out there in that beautiful state and and the ruggedness in the mountains and the snow and and the mountain lions, but also the challenges that he's facing out there and all houndsmen in Montana face. Uh, across the country, we all face challenges. That was a great visit. I enjoyed that very much. I just came back from Pennsylvania up and hunted a couple of nights and enjoyed the hospitality of Randy and Carrie Smith with Lone Pine Kennels. And of course, they've uh, been in the winter circle many times. Uh, it's amazing, really, when you consider that line of dogs, I think uh, Randy told us when we spoke to him that it's been 11 generations now, and yeah. uh, he just had uh, the last couple of years, he's had females inducted into the Tring Walker Breeders and Fanciers Hall of Fame. He has a dog that won the UKC World Championship mm-hmm. in 2016. That was a great and, talk. And another... Yeah, and another couple that have been in the final four for the last two or three years. So yeah, so he's coming up the pike, and we're going to have a good. I'm I'm going to uh, lasso my brother, and uh, many people don't realize that I have a brother that's also a houndsman. Yeah, uh, he he has chosen a different uh, career path than I did, but he has some great stories to share of hunts, uh, both with my dad and with my dad's dogs here in the mountains of uh, Virginia, primarily bear hunting. He may even be able to share a coon hunting story or two with us. And that's an interview that I'm really looking forward to. And so, uh, uh, you know, with that, maybe you can think of something else, Chris, that we haven't touched on. Yeah, I was at the uh, NRA convention this past weekend up in Indianapolis, the uh, national convention. I met with uh, Gary Robertson up there with Carnivore TV and talked to him about uh, coming on the podcast and talking about he's he does a lot of coon hunting, believe it or not. And, and Gary's from uh, Texas. He's about 40 miles from San Antonio. So uh, he calls it Central Texas, which he's from Texas and he knows 
where west, east, and central is. So uh, he is from central Texas there and does a lot of coon hunting. It's more of a desert-type environment. And then he also travels a lot up into uh, the Navajo Nation and hunts up there. But the the interesting thing about Gary is he's also the uh, producer of Carnivore TV. So uh, a lot of knowledge there. He 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 breeds dogs in Texas and supplies big game hunters out west with hounds. So I'm really looking forward to that interview. I talked to uh, uh, Garrett Long with the Wild Sheep Foundation, and that sounds kind of odd. Why are we going to talk to a guy from Wild Sheep Foundation? Predator control is really high on their list of priorities as they're reintroducing sheep herds to their native ranges. So they've done a lot of studies on predator control and and the movement of predators and the impacts that they have. And and that's one of the things we're seeing just blow up in social media and and the anti-hunting crowd now is is this fight against hunting our large predators. And uh, we're going to talk to experts on that and get their opinions on on what needs to be done there. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, large game biologists from the from the west about about mountain lions and bear management and uh, fur bear biologists back east here. So we got a lot of things on the plate and a lot of things in the hopper here. So I think there's going to be plenty of of uh, interesting topics discussed here in the next few weeks. And throughout the life of this podcast, I know that's true. I'm looking forward to those conversations for sure, and I know our listeners will enjoy them. Um, you can give them the information, Chris, as to how they can uh, tune into us each uh, uh, these podcasts. The beauty of them are it, uh, the beauty is that once the podcast is online, it's there, and you can access it at any time you want. Right. And you've been uh, you've been our technical guy through this whole process, and and learned a lot of the steps that we needed to do basically that I can sit here and talk into a mic. So uh, <laughs> you, you, you've done a great job to bring us this far and, uh, and man, it's going to be a wild ride. I it's can't going to be fun. It well, is. Let's, let's sure. Steve, let, uh, let's wrap this one up and put it in the bank and that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs>